This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 15th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Many people believe that science and research are essentially public goods, needing support from the government. Cato Institute adjunct scholar Terence Keeley argues that there are significant upsides to leaving science in the private sector. If you're a rich country, you need an awful lot of science. If you're a poor country, you need roads, you need electricity, you need the simple uh, things that staff of life. But the richer you are, the more you have to invest in science. And the signals are there. I'm about to come to what those signals are. Now, some of these countries, such as Switzerland or Japan, were basically laissez-faire regimes, where the government is funding very little R&D or science. Some of these countries, like Australia and New Zealand, were almost wholly nationalized. In 1979, if you were an Australian company and you wanted to do R&D, you didn't risk or hazard shareholders' money. You wrote a grant. It's extraordinary. And the money came from the government for your R&D. So we have enormously different policies between the different countries. But the outcome, you can't tell from the graph which are the privatized countries and which are the nationalized countries because the signals are there. And then responding to the signals is either the government or industry, but the same sort of response is coming in an advanced capitalist country. So this actually is implicit evidence of crowding out because those countries where the state has moved in to crowd out the private sector, that's fine. But where the state hasn't moved in, the private sector has made up the slack, or you could put it exactly the other way around. The private sector funds all the science it needs. If the state comes along, then it crowds out the private sector, but only because the private sector has, is now being given this free state science, which, of course, corporate welfare is always very welcome. Um, but that is an implicit piece of evidence for crowding out. And indeed, what Walter Park showed and what I've shown, what we've all showed, uh, looking at these national data sets, is that if government funds science, what you appear to have is crowding out. So the historical data is pretty clear, and the econometric data is pretty clear. There's no reason to believe that the governments should fund science. What does the economists say? What, what, what does current economics say? And this is dominated by a few great men, and they are great men. I, I'm not being sarcastic. They are great men. Um, in 1957, Robert Solow wrote his famous paper showing that almost all economic growth can be attributed to technology as opposed to other uh, economic things such as capital deepening or whatever. It's technology that gives you economic growth. It's unsurprising. In 1959 and 1962, two other great economists, Kenneth Arrow and Richard Nelson, write their famous books, their famous papers, explaining that science is a public good. What do they mean by that? I'm going to use a couple of technical terms. What they mean is that science is non-rivalrous and non-excludable. What they mean by that is if something is non-rivalrous, um, let's say, um, here is a pen. This is rivalrous. If I use it, you can't use it. It's a private good. But the third law of thermodynamics is non-rivalrous. I can apply it, you can apply it, anyone can apply it. It's non-rivalrous. The other thing is excludability. This is my pen. If you try to take it, I'll hold it and punch you. I can exclude you from the use of this pen. But science, at least the story goes, is not excludable. Anyone can go to the library and pick up the Journal of Molecular Biology and read the papers. Anyone can read the patents. Anyone can go to the conferences and find out what people are doing because scientists just tell everyone. So science is non-excludable and it's non-rivalrous, the characteristics of a public good. And therefore, Arrow and Nelson say in the late 50s, early 60s, it's a public good, must be funded by, by the government. That's the height of the libertarian nightmare. 
The great economists say that economic growth is due to technology, and that comes from innovation, and that can come only from government. There's a little bit of hope comes from two uh, other papers published in the 90s, one from Paul Romer, famous, of course, for post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory. And he points out, look, hold on a second. You know, just open the windows and look out there. There are all these huge industrial labs. Something's happening. And so he correctly shows that science is at least partially excludable. You can write patents and you can enforce patents. You can have industrial secrecy and therefore you can keep secrets. I'll come on to these things in a minute to show they're not as strong as Paul thinks they are. But nonetheless, he comes up with a very elegant model uh, by which he can show that, to some extent at any rate, private funders will, seeking profit, uh, invest in R&D because they can at least partially exclude the science that they've generated from other people. And actually, I owe Paul Rome an apology because when I wrote my first book, I haven't understood because, but he then concludes, nonetheless, you still have to have government funding because it's only partially excludable. And I picked up on that. And I didn't do Paul Romer the justice of recognizing that he had actually taken a huge step forward in starting the process of recognizing that governments didn't have to fund all science. So I apologize to Paul Romer for misrepresenting him in my book. Um, and I've apologized to him as well per, uh, by email. But um, at the same time, Partha Das Gupta and Paul David write another paper, a very well-known paper, hundreds of citations, also pointing out they don't know the solution to the problem, but they recognize that science cannot just be a public good, because otherwise you wouldn't have all these institutions, these societies and, um, around science, which clearly show that something's going on that's not simply a public good. And indeed, if you look at the, the data, every element of the public good argument breaks down. We are told, for example, that anybody can copy science. Well, let's not look at contemporary science, because that's obviously very difficult and up-to-date. Let's look at science as 100 years old. I mean, actually, the Dark Ages 100 years ago, surely science is 100 years old. I mean, that's obviously easy to copy. Anyone could read that. So, for example, Einstein's theories of relativity are now over 100 years old. Anyone can pick up the journals and read them, can't they? Of course not. It's actually very difficult copying science. And the only way you can copy science is to be a scientist yourself. So the direct cost of copying, they've been calculated, the direct cost of copying commercially useful science was shown by Edwin Mansfield, a very distinguished economist of science now dead, about 65%. It costs about 65% of the cost of the original innovation for another company to copy that science and technology and commercialize it. Those are the direct costs. But the indirect costs amount ultimately to 100% because you can't start copying until you have labs, until you have scientists, until they're doing their own research, until they can acquire what we call the tacit knowledge by which they can actually understand and access the research of others. And so we end up with the story of huge private investment in science, or rather in scientists, because only if you employ high quality, and they have to be the best, scientists in your lab, can you understand what other scientists are doing and can you copy. And that's not for free, because you can only keep those sort of scientists if they are themselves doing research and publishing. They won't stay otherwise. And even if they did stay, because they're no longer publishing and doing research, they very rapidly, very rapidly become out of date and are not in a position to look at modern papers and actually capture the science for you. So the evidence is very clear. 
Zwei Grillikers, for example, again, I'm sorry, recently dead, showed looking at over 200 companies here in the States, a direct relationship between the amount of pure science they funded and their subsequent profits. Pure science. Science funded for no other purpose but to keep pure scientists on the books so that those pure scientists, as Nathan Rosenberg once described so well, are in a position to access the research of others and import it into the company. But also to trade. It's a complete myth, by the way, that industrial science is secret. One of the reasons people say that governments have to fund science is that private science is secret and therefore doesn't benefit society at large. That's rubbish. Scientists share data all the time, not, not even with their competitors, but particularly with their competitors. And I'll explain to you why that is just in 30 seconds. Let me just point out what the data is, by the way. The data is that 7% of all industrial R&D goes for pure science. And when you consider industrial R&D something like 2% of global GDP, we're talking about huge figures here. So why do industrial scientists share data, not just despite the fact that it's with competitors, but actually preferably with competitors? Why indeed do competitor firms congregate on the same science parks? Why do competitors actually meet all the time? Why do scientists meet in conferences? Everyone knows that scientists all hate each other and compete with each other all the time, and yet they're forever meeting and sharing data. What's going on? Well, we go back to the Royal Society and the creation of modern science. In the olden days, before the scientific societies were created, scientists published secretly. There were two different ways you did that. You made a discovery, but the last thing you wanted was for your competitors to benefit from it. So you made your discovery, you wrote it up, you went to a lawyer, he stamped it, he notarized it, he confirmed it had been done on this particular date, he then locked it away in a safe. And you brought it out and flourished it only when a competitor published, and then you said, ah, oh, but I was there first. Look, I was there first. Another way of doing that was that people published in anagrams. They did actually publish, but in anagrams. So they'd write, they'd write their theories and papers, and then there would be a stream of A's, and then a stream of B's, and a stream of C's, a stream of D's, and with a code, again, kept secret. And then when the competitor publication came along, they said, look, this is what the anagram actually meant. I was there first. And these are really distinguished scientists, people like Robert Hooke. I mean, these are top scientists doing this. this wasn't, because scientists didn't want to give credit to other people for, uh, to help their competitors. But they still wanted ultimately to claim the credit. Well, this clearly was not optimal for society. And so what happened is that groups of scientists got together, led by the Royal Society, but this was a universal movement. It happened in Italy, the links and the others, where scientists agreed to share data with each other. Now that's dangerous, of course. Share data with each other. And the danger is that your competitor will steal your stuff and, and, and beat you. But if you don't share, you'll certainly get beaten. So, for example, look at this room here. There, there is a group of, I don't know, 15 people over there and a group of 15 people over there. Imagine that these 15 people become the Royal Society or the National Academy of Sciences, or it doesn't really matter what, and agree that they're going to publish openly, including the method section of their papers, with each other. Now, that's dangerous because you're revealing information to others, but on the other hand, it's a great opportunity because they're revealing data to you. We don't know which of you will make the great discovery, but one thing we do know, that if that group of people there are all secretive and don't share anything, then each of them only has the resources of their own lives, whereas these people have the resources of 14 other people to draw upon and make their great discovery. So for them, sharing data is dangerous, but it's a dance like less dangerous than what happens to those people who will certainly never make a great discovery. And that's the trade-off 
from joining the societies, and that's the trade-off for science becoming a so-called public good. That's the trade-off for sharing data. But you're only sharing data with people who are worthy with whom to share data. It's actually a trade. And the trade is seen most brutally in industry, where you don't have these lovely societies, because you're basically actually probably uh, breaking various laws, exchanging information secretly, antitrust and all that. But what happens in industry, and the data is remarkable, um, Eric von Hippel at the Sloan School of Management at MIT showed that 10 out of 11 steel firms that he inquired of, their R&D departments actively traded data with their competitor R&D departments of other steel firms. And Thomas Allen, also MIT Sloan, showed that 23% of industrially important innovations were traded from competitors, 23%. But it's the same story as here. Imagine there you have 15 steel companies all trading information, and there you have 15 steel companies all being secretive. We don't know who's going to make the great discovery in steel, which of those 15 it will be, but it certainly won't be one of those 15. So there are benefits, and the way you benefit and trade off is you share with peers, people who have information to share with you that's worth having. And for that, they've got to be engaged themselves in high-quality research. And so the incentive to do high-quality research is to have stuff to trade because, of course, you don't know ultimately what's going to be useful to you. And so we end up with a story that science is absolutely not a public good. Earlier this year, with my friend Martin Ricketts, Professor of Economics at Buckingham, we produced a new model. Um, we have produced a model which calls science, modeling science as a contribution good. You can only access the research of others if you have made a contribution. Because only by making a contribution can you benchmark your research against others? Do you know that you are of any quality? And do you have something to trade? And if you model science as a contribution good, i.e. you can only copy the research of others if you've actually produced science of your own, you can then produce a model for science, which has embarrassing implications. In our model, uh, the benefits are such that ultimately every single member of society becomes a scientist. So we've had to adapt the model and introduce diminishing returns and other little tricks. But if you have a model of science as a contribution good, you certainly resolve the problem of science needing government funding because there's no empirical data that it does. So it's clearly not a public good. The contribution good model does accommodate that rather nicely. Terence Keeley is Vice Chancellor Emeritus at the University of Buckingham and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can watch or listen to the full event at cato.org.